Father, we, um, we thank you. We thank you for uh, the truths we just sang, for the power of the scriptures, for, um, for the testimony of Jesus who uh, was tempted in every way and yet without sin and uh, the great hope he offers us. And we pray now as we open the scriptures and we get to look at this Jesus and uh, that, that we would find our hearts um, like burst open and, and await and receive all that you have for us. So thank you. Thank you for a season of Lent where you, you, you promise to meet us in repentance, that uh, you say you're not far from the humble, that you're near, and we want to be humble so that we may be near to you. So be near to us, we pray, in this time to the praise of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, this morning's passage is uh, Mark chapter 4. Verse 35 to 41. It's a pretty short little passage, so hear the word of the Lord. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, this is his disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, in 1997, I was still in this United States Air Force, um, and we had just, I, I flew on a big, Boeing planes, um, about 2,000 hours over the course of my career. We, um, I wasn't a pilot, I'm a back-ender, and we were just taking off. We had cleared the ground. We were probably about 30 seconds into takeoff process, and we just turned on all of our computers, and, and suddenly, boom, like this loud crack, and blue light flashed through the entire, uh, through the entire cabin, and um, we'd been struck by lightning. Now, I don't know if you've been struck by lightning. Anybody been struck by lightning before? Had strike near? Yeah, it'll wake you up. But when you're in the process of taking off on a big plane full of fuel, you're just really aware of what that might mean or look like. Um, the tricky thing about it, though, was that because of the lightning strike and because it basically blew all of our systems, uh, the thing that you normally do in a situation like that is you, you dump the fuel because you're too heavy to land, and then you land and all is well. Problem is, because they were worried about what the lightning strike might have done to the hydraulic system, all you engineers and mechanics are like, yeah. Uh, They were like, well, we don't want to open the valve that releases some of the fuel so that we can land, because if you keep it open, you may run out of fuel. Also not a good thing, in case you're wondering. So so they didn't want to do that. Uh, Simultaneously, of course, the gear is down, and normally when you get somewhere above 14, or less less than that, 14,000 feet, we've got some pilots in here too, so you can correct me, Dave. Somewhere, I don't know, I wasn't the pilot, I just heard it come up. The gear would come up, right? And then you can fly nice and smooth and quiet. But the problem was is they weren't sure that they'd be able to get the gear back down because of the lightning strike, which meant that we had to fly with the gear down. Now, most of you, if you've flown on airplanes, you've never had to fly in a plane with the gear down for any amount of time because you're not supposed to. 
but it is not a smooth ride. So we spent four and a half hours flying low in the summer heat with our gear down in storms. So it's like we're just sitting there like four and a half hours. I cannot tell you. There's, I mean, I flew lots and lots of sorties. But I tell you, that's the one when we came back down, like I wanted to go to the ground and just kiss the ground. Like, yes, terra firma. Like maybe we'll never have to do this again. Well, um, that lightning storm, candidly, I think pales in comparison to what Jesus and the disciples experienced um, on this particular passage. It's actually interesting that it's, it's not even the storm that takes the center stage. It's not the power of the storm that takes the center stage. It's actually the power of Jesus that comes and takes up all the room in this passage. And so what we're going to see this morning in Mark is that First, that Jesus is, sorry, Jesus has true power. That Jesus has true power. Second, that Jesus has absolute power. That Jesus has uncontrollable power. And that Jesus has sacrificial power. That he has true power. That he has absolute power. That he has unconditional power. And that he has sacrificial power. I'm indebted... um, it's that time of the week where we talk about how indebted we are to Tim Keller. I'm indebted to uh, Tim's book on, uh, he actually wrote this years and years ago that was by a different title, but it's called Jesus the King. It's actually a, a discussion on the life of Jesus, and it's, it's terrific. And I'm indebted to that book for some of the, some of the sermons that we've preached already and, and in the future, but it's just a really great work. But particularly this week, they, he brought up some things that I just never thought about or, or heard and um, one of those is that, that Jesus is, has, has true power. And by true power, what I mean is that, um, that this story is not a fable. Like, that this isn't fiction. That there's, um, there, there's scholars who, who look at, you know, how something is written and kind of try to decide what was this written for and what was its purpose. And, and there's normally to something like this so... Well, so fantastic, a desire to ascribe some kind, of, some kind of fiction to this kind of an account. But the problem is you can't do that with this account. And you would say, tell me more, Matt. I will. Well, apparently, the way in which we read fiction now, or some of you may even write fiction now, or some of you talk fiction now, um, we would naturally, inside of a story that we're making up or that we're writing for a class, we'd add like little details, like, uh, we would say things like, hey, um, I came in and, you know, it felt a little oppressive or it felt a little challenging. It was a little warmer than I anticipated, but, um, but you know, the sky, had, there was two birds that flew by, that, that kind of stuff, you know. And we all read that now and we're like, yes, it, it puts the reality into the story. That's not how any of the ancient stories were ever written. They were always written and all the details that were provided, they, all, all they knew how to write, this is back ancient times all the way through them until just a, about a hundred and so years ago, there was, you didn't add extra stuff that didn't move the plot forward. You only told the details that mattered to the, the purpose of the story moving forward. And, and that's not what we see here. There's all these random details that don't do anything for the story. I mean, I'm talking nothing whatsoever. It says in verse 36 that... Um, but they took him just as he was. This, this looks back, this harkens back to, you should use the word harken as often as you can. This harkens back to uh, the beginning of chapter 4 where it said that Jesus had to sit in a boat in order to teach because there was people trying to press him. And so he's in this boat and it says the disciples came over and they switched him from this boat to another boat and, and then they took off. 
Who cares? And it doesn't change anything about anything. It says that Jesus got in that boat, that there were other boats around, which we never hear about again, and that he fell asleep on, on a cushion. Does it matter? And, and he fell asleep on the cushion in the stern, which, of course, all you Navy people know that that's the back of the boat. I'm an Air Force guy. Um, why does this matter? It, it doesn't. It's extraneous information. You know what that tells any scholar who knows anything about writing? This is an eyewitness account. It's like when I told you that the light was whitish blue that ran through the, co- through the, um, through the cabin. Like, that's not something that you write in there unless you saw it. And I saw it. And, and what this is, this is an eyewitness account, which means something. That either, either, you can believe that Mark, like no one who was before him and no one who followed him for hundreds of years, wrote a made-up story using these kinds of details that no one in the world ever used again until just a, I mean, a couple hundred years ago. Or this actually happened. This is a real event where a real Jesus really did this. If that's the case, well, there's some implications. One is we, we don't it means that this is a real Jesus, which means we don't get to pick and choose what we like and don't like about him, about what he says, about what he teaches. It means that he is this powerful, that he does have this kind of command, that this is reality. It means we don't get to, to negotiate with Jesus about our sexual ethic or whether or not we're going to uh, you know, respect our husbands or, or love our wives or, or honor our parents. We don't get to have that negotiation. It's, this is the real Jesus, and he has this kind of power, and, and he gets to declare what is, what is true. So this story is a story of true power in real life. And if we're being called to, to learn to trust Jesus in the storms of our lives, which I believe is one of the central thrusts of this particular passage, we need to know that it really happened. That he stood on that boat and he quieted a storm on a real day. And that we can lean into that because we need to lean into that. So Jesus has true power, real power that happened in a real world, that if it happened in a real world, He has real power in this world today with you. But Jesus doesn't just have true power. He has absolute power. Verse 37 says, And a great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. The topography of the Sea of Galilee, it's landlocked sea, uh, but there's this like, there's Mount Hermon to the north there, and it's like 10,000 feet, but the sea's like 700 feet below sea level. And what that means, apparently, is that that creates some crazy atmospherics. It means that out of nowhere, you can end up with a storm in a hurry, and, and you would never anticipate it. Now, what shows up here is, says there is a mega storm. This is a pretty impressive storm that emerges for Jesus and the disciples. It's, it must be an incredible storm, enough of an incredible storm, that it elicits terror and fear out of seasoned fishermen. Remember that, right? Four of the disciples at least were, were fishermen. They're pros. They actually fish this very sea all the time, and they are terrified. You see, the sea... Um, the ocean, the sea, the waters were, in ancient days, 
seen as, and this is almost in all cultures and all, all religious, religious views, whether it's animistic or, or, um, or non-animistic, um, religious, um, theistic, there we go, um, is uh, it's a place of chaos. It's the place where, let's be honest, it's out of control. And if the sea gets out of control, there is no way anyone has any control or power over it. No one can tame it. Seems a place sometimes of malevolent deities or, or of evil spirits. It's uncontrollable for realm. It is only the realm of God. You see this in, in Psalm 107. There's plenty of writings in other contexts, but Psalm 107 points to this too. It says in verse 23, uh, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded, he commanded, and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in, the evil, in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and wit, were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waters of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Sound familiar? Like a psalm written in advance for the disciples. Only God, only the divine, has control over the seas. Everyone knows it. Everyone knew it. The fury of the sea and its control belongs to God only. And yet, verse 39, it says, and Jesus rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a mega, a great calm. Here we have Jesus. Everyone knows the seas belong to God. Everyone knows it's the realm of the deity, of deity. And he says, be quiet. Peace, be still, be quiet, and, and, and stay quiet. Now, I know for those of you who grew up in the church and you learned this story in Sunday school, you may be a little anesthetized to the reality of what's unfolding here, but, but this, is this is absolute power. We find ourselves sometimes more amazed at like someone having a demon cast out or maybe someone being healed because it feels a little bit more tangible. It feels a little closer to home. Like we know what people getting better from medicine looks like and so we can kind of get our arms around that. But to have Jesus from a spoken word, talk to a hurricane like you talk to your disobedient kid. Be quiet and sit down. That's what he does. Be quiet and, and stay quiet. And it goes quiet. And what's amazing, the thing we see here is it's not just that the wind dies down, which it does. The, the wind stops instantaneously, but you know it's the Sea of Galilee. That could just be a coincidence. You know, sometimes the sea's, right, the wind's going, and suddenly it just stops. Oh, that's maybe coincidence, but the thing it says here is that it wasn't just that the, the sea was, it wasn't just that the wind calmed down, but it said there was a great calm over the water. It was a great calm, a mega calm. Jesus is saying, be muzzled. If you've been to a, a lake house or, or to the ocean sometimes, you ever come out there sometimes early in the morning, and it's just like, flat. 
I mean, it's, there's, you know, no boats have gone by. There's no waves if you're by the ocean. It's, it's just smooth. Like, you, if you looked into it, you could see your face. Yeah, dead calm. That's what, that's what this is saying. And, and what's crazy, if you think about this, is that it's one thing for the wind to stop, but have you ever been outside when there's been, like, a lot of wind and, there's, and you're choppy, choppy water and choppy ocean and, and the wind may stop, and what happens? It's still choppy. Like, it can be choppy for quite a while after there's no wind whatsoever because there's tons of currents that have been moved around but not here. At Jesus' words, all things cease. Dead calm. He has absolute power over the wind and over the seas. And I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't conjure up anything. He doesn't go like all Gandalf or Dumbledore on us. He doesn't like pull out his wand and like start spinning things, you know, whatever the final episodes of that book are. Um, it, that's not how it works. He doesn't like, so there's no special incantation. That he doesn't even reach out to anyone. He doesn't ask, you know, the spirit of God or he doesn't, father, does he say anything? Does he ask for any help, any backup? No. He speaks out of who he is. Absolute power. The power is within him. A few weeks ago, we were talking about Sabbath and Sabbath rest, and, and we talked about the fact that it's, that D Jesus doesn't just say, hey, listen, I'm going to, to bring you rest or give you rest. He actually says, I am rest, right? He says, come to me because I'm rest. You're going to find your rest in me. It's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying not, I have power, though he does have power. He's saying, I am power. I am power. Such good news for you and I. I am power. He is power. Which also means that if he has power and he's absolute power, then all power, all power that is in, in the universe is on loan from him. All power is on loan from him because he has absolute power. So, let me ask you, how, how much power does your Jesus have? Like how, how, how big is he? How, how much power does your God have? What, what, what can he do? What, what are his limitations? What, what, who can he reach and who can he not reach? What can he reach into and what, what is he really not able to do? Does your God have absolute power? Does, does your Jesus fit this size because he takes this kind of room in the story and, of course, throughout the rest of the gospel. With God, all things are possible. We'll see in a few weeks uh, the father of a, of a boy who's possessed by demons. And the father says, hey, by the way, Jesus, if you can, will you help my son? And I love Jesus' answer. He says, if I can. I'm not sure it was exactly like that. He says, if I can? What do you mean if I can? He's like, with faith, anything is possible. He says, well, I, I want to believe, so help my unbelief. But, but this is the Jesus who can. And, and I don't, there's some of you, that, like, like he's got, Jesus has gotten smaller and smaller. Your God has gotten smaller and smaller. And like he has to fit within the constraints and confinements of, of some scientific context or, or what he might be able to do based on what he's done in the past. And all I want to say is like we have a God who has absolute power. We have a Savior who has absolute power. And that's good news. You'll notice one of the things that Jesus says. 
So, so let me say this. God, this is one of the reasons why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. We've talked about this in prayer series before, but one of the reasons why Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, um, so when you pray, it, you don't finish it with like a, and, you know, signed. No, you finish in Jesus' name because it is power, there is power in, in him. It is for him to accomplish the thing you just asked for, to make possible the thing that seems impossible in your heart and mind. He has the power to heal and he has the power to carry you through when you're not healed. He has the power to provide and the power to give you a heart of contentment when your desires are not being met. He's that powerful. And by the way, sometimes the second is harder than the first. One of the things I love how this passage starts, he says, let us go across to the other side did you catch that at the beginning? It kind of gets easily skipped over. Jesus is like, okay, cool. Let's go to the other side. And then he falls asleep. Jesus is going to the other side. He has no doubt about that. He's, in some ways, he, he just made a promise. We're, we're, going, we're going over there. And the disciples are like, that sounds great. They just didn't know what was going to happen between that spot and that spot. And it was a scary story that unfolded between those places. But Jesus promises we're heading to the other side. Jesus, this is the central, one of the central principles. Jesus has all the power, all the power needed to get us to where he wants to take us. Jesus has all the power necessary to take us where he wants to take us. Now, there's probably like nine caveats in there, right? He has the power, no doubt about it, to take you where he wants to take you. It just may not be where you want to go which means you may not be as much of a fan of how or where he takes you, but, but he has that kind of power. So Jesus has true power and he has absolute power, but, but that power is not under our control. This is probably the hardest thing about this. Take a look. Jesus has uncontrollable power. and Just look at the emotional movements for the disciples in this particular passage. They move um, from real, like, terrified fear related to the storm to being terrified of Jesus. Did you catch that? It says in verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. They were filled with, oh, wait, mega fear. See, we have, this, we have this mega storm that Jesus brings to mega calm, and they experience mega fear. Three megas, the third being some of the most perplexing. The disciples have fear. Literally, it says, they feared with great fear. Who is this, they say? They had just called him teacher in the miracle. Teacher, would, why are you sleeping? Do you not care? This is not teacher anymore. They just learned that there is way more to this Jesus than just being a rabbi, than just being a teacher. They don't know what to do with him because they can't put him in a predictable, controlled box. And every time they even try to, Jesus just blows out the side of the box. It's hopefully what he keeps doing in your life and in my life. 
and, and this is what it manifests as, you see that the, the, the philosophy, what they actually are operating in, in verse 38, when they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? They wake up, they wake him up, and, and in short, they tell him that you, you, you're asleep at the hour we need you most. You're you're off the grid when it is so important that you be here and engaged and fully participating. We need you, and you don't seem to care. Now, I think what I love about this is if you've walked with God for any amount of time and, and sought to actually follow Jesus and, and have some kind of relationship with God, and you haven't felt those things or said those things, you haven't had a real honest relationship with God. Right? I mean, don't, don't you care? Any, who here has been like, Lord, do you not care? Like, I'm in a really rough spot. This really difficult thing has happened. This, this terrible thing is unfolding in front of me. I, I've lost something significant or I need something desperately. And, and where are you? you? You feel like you're asleep. Asleep at the wheel or just asleep and distant from me. We found ourselves sinking in some form of a storm and we looked for Jesus and said, if you really loved me, you will let me be going through this. If you really cared about me, you wouldn't have me go through this storm. If you cared about me, you wouldn't wouldn't let me feel like I'm about to perish or that I'm perishing and that my life life just wouldn't be sinking. And so we find ourselves crying out to God for, for rescue maybe from circumstances. Sometimes we cry out to God for rescue through circumstances. But most of the time we just cry out to God for relief. Like change it because it's, it's hard and I don't like it and I don't understand and I don't think it's good. Can you relate? Can you relate right now maybe? There are things in your life where you're going like, I, this is not, this cannot be for my good. This cannot be worth it. Where is he? What is he doing? I remember um, 2009, I was in between, I was on a kind of a severance thing on my way, kind of transition between two, two jobs, and uh, something really promising that I had kind of building towards for the past month and a half fell through. And um, up till then, I had been declaring the praises of the Lord in the morning as I rose. But on that day, when the thing that I had said, ah, the good life, it is going to be this. And Jesus redefined my good life. And he said, not for you. And, um, and the storm started to rage. The storm of like, can I, will I be able to provide for my family? If this opportunity goes away, maybe all opportunities will go away. I think I may never work again. You know, that logical kind of thinking. And um, don't laugh, you're just like me. Um, but I remember, I mean, I had my first panic attack. Like, I remember being on the ground weeping, and I couldn't get my breath. Like, that's, that's a storm. And I just remember thinking, God, where are you? Why are you doing this to me? Do you not care about me? Yes, I know you've done this, and I know you've walked me through this, but do you not care about me now? What does Jesus do? First of all, they wake him up, he calms the storm, which is, you know, we've already talked about how amazing that is. But then he turns to them, and what, and what he doesn't say, he doesn't say, hey, guys, listen, good thing you woke me up. That was a close one. Good job. 
No, like, okay, they just experienced trauma. You know, I feel like all of our, like, current cultural, like, directions would be like, hey, they're going to need a debriefing. You know, we're going to need to make sure that there's any post-traumatic stress. We're going to have to work them through that. No, Jesus turns to them, and he's just like, he rebukes them. Like, he rebukes them. They just went through a storm, and he just calmed it. And the first thing he says to them is a rebuke. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? It can actually be translated, where is your faith? It's by principle saying, not so much what's the quantity of your faith, which is usually what we try and think, what's the quantity of my faith? I just need more faith. I wish I had faith like you. No, no, no. It's the object, always the object of the faith, right? It's never the, never the, substance, it's never the quantity. It's the object of the faith that Jesus is interested in. Where is your faith? Where is it pointing to? He rebukes them. Why are you afraid? I'm like, what do you mean, why are we afraid? You saw the storm. We were afraid because we were convinced that you didn't love us, that you didn't care about us. And because you didn't care about us, that terrible things were going to happen. And Jesus is saying, why are you undone by fear? Why in the midst of this storm did you start to believe that I didn't care about you, that I didn't love you? The kind of love that would have brought calm to the storm in you. Jesus is pushing back. He's saying, you, you've come to the wrong conclusion. You should have known better. I, I do allow people that I love to go through storms. I can love someone and still get them to go through a storm you had no right to panic. I can love someone and I can take them through the darkest of days. The reason why the disciples were mega afraid after the storm, after it was gone, is because they could see that Jesus was not just as uncontrollable as the storm, he was more uncontrollable than the storm. He might take them through anything. What would he not do? do. We can't control the storms in our lives, nature, and well, we think we can, but mostly we can't. And even if, even if it's not the big things, if it's not a fire or, you know, an earthquake, um, you can't control decay in your own life. Eventually, we're all going to die. You don't have control over the movement of nature upon us. Like, it's, it's an illusion. But we can't control Jesus either. Loved ones, God allows circumstances to happen that we don't understand, and simply because we don't understand why he's doing them doesn't mean that he's not living out and working out a plan. That he's committed not to our version of the good life, of our good life, that he's committed to a version of the good life that he has prepared for us and that he's working out in his own way, in us and for us. Which means that He's going to do things in ways that don't make sense to us. Uh, I love this quote from, from Tim Keller book. It says, if, if you have a God great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who is great enough and infinite enough and powerful enough to have reasons to allow you to suffer that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. That's tough. Because our response then could be, well, then 
I, I, I don't want this then. I, if this is what can be true, and that is a very real temptation. But Jesus is saying, I'm God. I just stilled the storm. And if I'm God and I have that kind of power to do that, then I'm great enough to have some reasons for why I'm doing what I'm doing that you just are not going to get. You may never get in this lifetime. You can't control my power. The storm is incredibly powerful and it can't be controlled. And Jesus apparently is infinitely more powerful and he can't be controlled, which should be terrifying, except for one thing. The difference between the, the unstoppable storm and the infinitely powerful Jesus is that the storm doesn't love you. The storm is not good towards you. The movement of the storm is not towards making you all that, you, that his dream and vision of who you would become would be, but that's true of Jesus, that, that his power is good towards you, that his power is filled with love for you. It's what we sang this morning. And if that's the case, well, that, that changes everything to the degree in which we allow that to sink in. So some of you are in the, in the midst of some storms right now or you've come out of a storm and you're living with the aftermath of chaos and some of the destruction and like when a hurricane goes through and just makes a mess and years later there's still remnants and scars and torn down trees and houses. Some of you are, are living in that. Some of you are living more through um, the long-winded tempests that are just eroding some of what you're most longing to see happen in your life eroding your strength and your hope. So this passage would ask, how, how, are you, how are you navigating that? How are you navigating the storm? The current one, the, the previous one? How are you looking back on the previous storms in your life? How are you anticipating the ones to come? Because they're coming in small form or large. We know that. In this world, you will have trouble. But trust in God and trust all, also in me, Jesus says. So it's coming. So how, how, are, you, how are you handling? How are you moving towards? Are you, are you trying to manipulate God? Well, God, like, I think I learned enough from the last time. I, I, you know, like, I don't have to worry anymore. Like, I, you won't do this. If, I, if I'm good enough, like, of course you wouldn't bring bad things to me. You know, you're, only, you're four people. You know, God helps those who help themselves. You know, like, so God, you can't be, if I do all the right things and, and this kind of quid pro quo, I've earned my way to you giving me the things that I want or at least not the bad things that I don't want. I mean, that's, frankly, that's the temptation of Lent. And if you don't have this moment go through your mind, you're probably not being honest with yourself. And that is, oh, I wonder what God may think about me being this pious for 40 days. I wonder what he might do for me. I wonder if, I wonder if he'll listen a little more attentively to my prayers. If, if that doesn't actually go through your mind, you're probably not being honest with yourself. So how, how do we relate to this God who is, to this Jesus who has absolute power and are there ultimatums in your relationship with God? Are, are, you, have you demand, are you demanding something and it's kind of like a, if you don't, like, or else, you better, or else. This is your last chance to come through, to, to, to be what I think you should be or to, to fix or move the circumstances, to, to change this kid of mine who won't, to, to alter this, to, is there an ultimatum in your heart and your soul? What have you concluded about God because he has not yet taken you to the other side? 
Jesus wants you to receive his power by faith. It's a power that's filled with love and to walk with it and to wait for it. Wait for him with patience. Man, that's hard work. That takes power. Because loved ones, he is taking you to the other side. Like You must know this. Our hope is the fact that there is another side that he says he has not only gone to prepare for us, but that he is making real in us more and more as we follow him here now. He's taking us to the other side. So how do we know in the midst of the storm that Jesus cares that his absolute unmanageable power is full of love? How do we know? The disciples didn't know, and Jesus is saying, by now you should know more than you know. By now you should have been more, there should have been more calm inside regardless of the storm outside. That's what he's saying. There should be more. So how do we know that his power is absolute, is unmanageable, oh dear, but that he loves us, that it's full of love? Well, we have something that the disciples didn't have. We have, we have a vision, a picture of Jesus. We have a an image, a magnitude of what he's chosen for us. We have a resource in the vision of Jesus on the cross. What's, um, what's fascinating about this passage, and it doesn't matter which commentator you read, they all talk about the uncanny parallelism between this passage in Mark and Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, if you guys remember Jonah, he was fleeing from the Lord. He jumps on a ship. He's going to head to Tarshish because you can run away from God on a boat. And um, <clears throat> he wants to get as far as possible. So he certainly doesn't want to do what God has for him to do. And so he gets on this boat. And, and what's fascinating is you look at both passages and they have tons of stuff in common. First thing they have in common is, well, Jesus and Jonah are both on a boat. I know, it took a minute. Um, <clears throat> but the other thing is, you, you, so they're both on a boat. And, and for both of them, a, a storm emerges, seemingly almost out of nowhere, and, and seemingly by the hand of God, it would appear. And the other thing they have in common is that all the sailors are afraid. Disciples or sailors, they're all afraid. And both Jonah and Jesus are asleep in the storm. Both of them. And they both get awakened and accused of not caring about what's going on. The word about, like, or we will perish in the, in the, uh, the Mark version and, and the Jonah version in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, they're the exact same word. Like, the parallelisms are just crazy. It's almost like Mark was thinking about Jonah as he's telling the story and trying to use some of the very verbatim, like, words so that he can pull these things together to, to show something. In both cases, God intervenes miraculously and a storm ends instantly. And in both cases, the crew members are almost more afraid on the backside than they were of the storm. Both have fear, great fear. There's one massive difference, one huge difference, right? Jesus stands, peace, be still, and the storm ceases, but not Jonah. Jonah has to look at the crew members and say, unless you throw me in the water, you're all going to die. Like, it's going to take me giving up my life, me being thrown into the deep, in order for you to live. Which seems like a pretty magnitude, ma massive difference, unless you take a full step back and look at the full arc of the picture of the Gospel of Mark and, a, and of the story of Jesus and realize that that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. It says in, in Matthew 12, Jesus is talking about 
about himself, and he says, you know, um, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the, in the earth for three days and three nights. And, um, and then he says, in, uh, he says, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Oh, yeah, something greater than Jonah is here. This is a, this is a true and better Jonah. Though he had all the power in himself to tame the greatest of sea, found himself choosing to be thrown into the sea that as he died, they might live. Absolute power becoming subjected to death. If you take this moment and you think about the cross and the power present in Jesus, it's unbelievable. So when you go like, hey, he could have told, called 10,000 angels. Remember that song or that passage? He could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't. It's like, he could have called 10,000 angels. He could have just said a word. He could have ripped that cross right out of the ground. It would have wiped everyone out in front of him. He could have done it. He has absolute power, but, but he's a God who loves you, and so he goes into the water to receive the, the wrath and the curse of God on him instead of you because that's where we belong. We belong in the water to try and bring peace with God to the world. But God goes in. Jesus goes in instead for you and for me. And so that's how we're galvanized in the midst of terrible storms of our lives. We get to, we get to, loved ones, we get to look at Jesus choosing to go in on our behalf, sinking down for you and me, and then we know he loves us. If he, if, if he chose if he chose in the ultimate storm to make it well for us by his cost, to say, I love you, this is how much I love you, well then, how in the secondary storms of our life, not, not the ultimate storm of death and sin, but, but the smaller things, how can he also not say, I am with you? My power to accomplish what I have purposed is present to do that in you and with you. You see, that's how we're galvanized. That's how we're, that's how we're strengthened. That's how we can walk through, be present in, and wait in the midst of the worst and hardest of storms. It's because he went in. He went ahead of us. And that's what we remember. Every time we come to this table, we remember that, that he was thrown in and there was a great calm. That sin and death were overcome. And, and now when we come, we remember. We remember the man of ultimate power becoming obedient to death for us. And we take that in us and we, and we say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, can you? No, you can. And you've shown that you will. So would you take me to the other side? I, I trust that you will take me to the other side. Lord, would you carry me? May I have access to your power as we walk to the other side, as we travel to the other side because I know you love me. I've seen it displayed in Christ Jesus on the cross. And this is what we remember. We take these things into us and we allow God over time to make it truer and deeper and deeper in us. That's the good news of the gospel and that's how it works. Let's pray. Father, oh how he loves You do. You love like a hurricane. You have the power over hurricanes. And so we, Lord, want to, um, we want to avail ourselves of 
the great picture of, of you choosing on our behalf to go under, to, to perish that we might live, to bring calm to all, all the things that really ailed us, the deep things that we can do nothing about. And Lord, you invite us to trust you, and so we want to trust you with the things that we cannot control and that we do not see, and frankly, Lord, the things we don't understand. Would you give us faith to trust who you are and what you're doing, that it is good on our behalf because you love us. This we pray, please, asking, Holy Spirit, would you, in, would you impress that deep truth into our hearts more and more? Pray that in Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this meal is for you. So come and receive the body and blood of Christ for you.